Hey, if you have your Bibles, we are going to be in Ephesians chapter 4 tonight. You can turn there. But if you grew up in Wisconsin like I did, I wonder if there was a required, required reading, a required book in your elementary classroom like there was in mine. It's a famous autobiography that was set in the great state of Wisconsin in 1871, written by a woman named Laura Ingalls Wilder. Anyone read Little House in the Big Woods? I certainly did. Let me just uh, explain a little bit of the plot. It's quite remarkable. Laura actually recounts the book, writes the book later in life, though she remembers a full year of life starting at age five all the way through age six and just describes what it's like to grow up in this little farmhouse, this little cabin in the woods in rural western uh, Wisconsin. And she tells some hilarious stories, but the family didn't have much. Um, They were really just trying to survive, make ends meet but they valued one another and they worked together as a team to survive uh, in the late 1800s in in our state. One story cracked me up. Uh, Dad, they called him Pa, he was gone, probably doing some hunting overnight and it was cold, it was the winter and mom looked outside and she saw what she thought was one of the cows that had escaped from the barn. So she takes five-year-old Laura out with her in the middle of the winter to try to get this cow corralled back into the barn. And they get out there and it wasn't a cow. It was a bear on all fours. Um, and of course, Laura runs back to the house screaming and, and everyone was fine. They had story after story like that because they worked together. The girls would help Pa clean his guns. They would help Mom make butter. And they worked together to survive. Those are what I call the good old days of family values and no screen time. They valued one another and they worked together to survive. Even though we might not be living in the late 1800s, you and I still understand that family is a gift. And some of the greatest joys in life, sometimes some of the greatest challenges, can come from the gift of family. And though some of you, some of us here tonight, when I even use the word family, that might bring up great memories. For others of us, I talk about family, and that might bring up some really painful memories. I think God has instilled in us the the desire, the longing to be part of a family that loves one another and cares for one another and serves one another. So tonight, we're going to talk about family, but we're not talking about a nuclear family. We're talking about our forever family, because when we turn from our sin and trust in Christ, we're adopted into God's family. We talked about in Ephesians 3 we get a new last name. We have the same last name. That when we're part of God's family, we have this unified identity. We are together as a family. That's the family that we're going to talk about tonight. Because even when this life ends, those family relationships, they're going to last for all of eternity. We get to enjoy Jesus together forever. So tonight, it's time for a family talk from Ephesians 4. Because Paul outlines some parameters in our text for what relationships look like in the family, in the church family. Now, let me be clear. Paul's words tonight are directed towards the church. So the application from our text is far bigger than just our young adult family. Because young adults is not a church. We are part of a church. We are part of a local church, but we are not a church. So By being here on a Monday night, I'm assuming that you're even more committed or just as committed to your local church as you are to young adults. But because young adults is part of a church, Paul's 
application tonight applies to us just as much it does to our broader church family. So a lot of our application tonight is going to target our young adult family. We can call tonight a family talk because relationships bring incredible joy (laughs) and they bring incredible pain and frustration at the same time. And in the moments of pain and angst, we might ask, are these relationships, are these relationships, are they worth fighting for? Absolutely. This is a family that's worth fighting for. We're better together. We need each other. There's no such thing as solo Christianity. God has selected us, his church, not us as individuals, to accomplish his purpose in the world. So that's where we find ourselves in Ephesians. The structure in Ephesians is is quite simple. The first three chapters are all theology. All talks about what we believe in our head and our hearts. And then the second section, the last three chapters, are all the implication. We start with orthodoxy, right belief, and then we get into orthopraxy, right practice. We go from our head and our hearts then to our actions. But the order matters, doesn't it? We have to talk about what we believe. We have to talk about our identity before we can talk about the actions that flow from it. So that's why the first three messages, or first three chapters, the five messages we had from those chapters were high theology, asking big questions. Who am I? Who is God? Who is Jesus? What is God's love for us? What does it mean to be adopted into God's family? But now you'll notice the tone's going to change drastically. As it started last week with Steve, we're going to be way more practical. What does it look like to live out our calling? So before we get to the end of chapter four, we're going to land. Look at chapter four, verse one. This is where the entire book turns from theological to practical. And Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. He says, worthy of the calling. Think about that for a moment. The first three chapters of the book were all about our calling, our identity being adopted into God's family. And as a result, there's a a way that God expects us, asks us to live as part of the family, that we walk worthy of our calling. The Greek word walk, peripateo, that's what it means. It literally means to walk, but this isn't a a literal step here. This is a a spiritual step. It's a metaphor, really living in a worthy way. But I love the word walk because it reminds us that our relationship with Jesus is a process, that when we're adopted into God's family, we're on a journey, that we are all a work in progress, and that we're walking toward Christ. That sanctification, it doesn't happen in a moment. It happens over a lifetime. And he calls us to a, a holy calling, a worthy calling. So if we created a list of what it means to walk worthy, what would be on your list? To walk worthy of the calling to which we've been called. What do you think? Read your Bible, pray. I've got to serve in church. I've got to share my faith. Likely, our list would be highly personal. My personal relationship with Jesus, all the things that I'm going to do with Jesus and for Jesus. But that's not where Paul starts. It's all about unity, isn't it? Steve talked about that last week. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. One of the primary ways that we live out our calling, our identity, is together, is unity. 
by remembering that we are on the same team, that we're fighting for this calling, for this walk together. So Paul fleshes out the unity, what it looks like all through chapter four, and he takes a little bit of a break, goes back in a a theological discussion there at the end of chapter four. Um, So we're going to be starting in verse 25 tonight, but for this passage to make sense, we have to go back a couple verses. So look at verse 22. He says this, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Pause there. You see what Paul's doing? He's creating a a clothing metaphor. We're putting off the new self and we're putting on new clothes. That's 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation, right? The old has passed away, the new has come. And again, that's a process. It begins in a moment, but lasts for a lifetime that we're becoming, we're growing to look more and more like Christ. So as Paul fleshes out the rest of the chapter, he gives us five things, five practical ways that we can put off the old self and we can put on the new self. Five ways that we can grow in unity together. So let me read our text 25 to 32. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we're members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. There's a clear outline to our section. There's five things to put off. There's five things to put on. And then Paul gives us a reason, a why for each one. So that's going to be our five principles tonight. The first comes from verse 25. It's pretty simple. Here's our first principle. Put off lying, put on truth-telling because we're a family. Put off lying, put on truth-telling because we're a family. Lying, deceit. Deceit is the default language of our culture, isn't it? I don't know what to believe when I log on to social media. I don't know who to believe when I turn on the news. I don't know what to believe when I listen to politicians or celebrities or cable news networks. I don't know what the truth is. But lying happens all the time in everyday life, not just to them, but it's a temptation for us as well. A white lie to cover up a mistake at work, cutting corners on taxes to save a couple hundred dollars, lying to a spouse or a roommate about what you really did over the weekend. Deceit, it's not neutral. It's the default language of our spiritual enemy, Satan. He is the adversary. He's the deceiver. He's the father of lies. His language is lying. Like you and I speak English, he speaks the language of lying. So when you and I tell a lie, you understand the implication. We're actively advancing the wrong kingdom. We're speaking the language of our spiritual enemy, and instead we need to be people who tell the truth. There are many ways that you and I might be tempted in deceit. Here's two ideas that might be relevant for our young adult family today. Here's one. 
False flattery. See, deceitful words, they're not always negative words. Maybe an effort to get someone to like you or to get what we want out of them, we butter them up and manipulate them through flattery. Or do we ever avoid a hard conversation, a truthful conversation with someone because we don't want to enter into the world of confrontation or we don't want them to think less of us, we don't want to damage the relationship. So instead of saying something that really needs to be said, instead of addressing a a sin issue we've encountered in someone else's life, we just ignore it and we enter into the world of false flattery. It's easier to skip the truth talks, but when done in love, with the right motivation, in the right way, those truth conversations build up the family while false flattery hurts the family. Or how about this? Inflated holiness. I wonder how often we make ourselves look holier than we actually are. I know it never happens in life groups ever. We're, uh, we're telling a story about how our week went. None of us would ever be tempted to inflate our quiet time or our prayer life and make it look better than it actually is. I'm sure I've never been guilty of doing that. Or maybe when we're talking to an accountability partner or a mentor about a sin struggle in our life, how often do we make things look a little rosier than they actually are? Or how about the Bible journey Bible, journal, coffee, Bible verse, Instagram posts. I don't have a problem with those. But if you post those once a month and you have quiet time once a month, they might not be coming from the right motivation. If we're going to post those things online, then they should represent the true depth of our relationship with Christ and come from the right motivation. Because it's easier for us to tell lies, to tell half-truths than it is to speak the truth. But when we tell a lie, we tear down the family. When we tell a lie to someone in the family, we hurt ourselves or we hurt them and we're on the same team. Imagine, what if the defensive coordinator of the Chicago Bears, I'm going to go there because I'm going to make the, I'm going to use the Bears as a bad example. Okay, I know that's a surprise. So, it's true. Maybe this is a bad example then. Imagine the hypothetical coordinator of the Chicago Bears in an effort to make his defense look better, decided that he wanted to leak some plays to the other team's offensive coordinator before the game. No, that wasn't right, was it? It didn't make any sense. Imagine as the defensive coordinator, he leaked plays about the offense to the other team's defense so that his offense would look terrible, and by comparison, his defense would look better. Does that make sense? That's a terrible idea. Why? Because you're going to lose the game. You might make your team, your offense, your defense look better. You might make the offense look worse, but at the end of the day, you're going to lose the game. See, when you and I tell a lie to a brother or a sister in Christ, we're doing the same thing. We might feel like we're advancing ourselves, but we're hurting the family because we're on the same team. A lie always hurts us. It always hurts someone else. Telling the truth is hard, but it's how we build up the family. For the second element of our family talk, look at verse 26 and 27. It says this, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Have you noticed that verse before? 
You know that the Bible says, be angry. Wait, isn't anger sinful? Most of the time, (laughs) anger is sinful, but not all the time. Anger is a natural emotional response to sin. But it's not sinful in and of itself. The Bible records examples of both the father and the son's anger. What's the classic example we turn to of Jesus' anger in the New Testament? Turning over the tables in the temple. And that was righteous anger. And Jesus responded in a a controlled and a measured way. But often what happens to you and I is we don't have control over the anger. The anger has control over us. And when that happens, anger becomes a sin. But certainly, you and I should be angry over things in our world. You and I should be angry in a righteous way. When we turn on the news and we see a horrific terrorist attack in the Middle East, we should be angry. Or when we turn on the news and we realize that there's a terrorist organization hiding out underneath schools and hospitals to use innocent people as a human shield, that should make us angry. Or when we watch the news and we see victories for reproductive health care and bodily autonomy, that should make us angry because that's not what God calls it. Or when someone hurts a family member or a friend or a parent, we feel angry, don't we? When we feel the emotion of anger, How we respond matters. It really matters. That's what Paul's getting at. Here's our second principle. We put off uncontrolled anger. We put on addressed anger because harbored anger provides the enemy a foothold. I want you to think about God's anger for a moment. God's anger is always controlled. It is measured It's gracious. He is never controlled by his anger. But for us, when anger controls me, it controls you, then our anger becomes a relational wrecking ball. I bet you know the feeling of being controlled by anger. I certainly do. It wasn't too long ago. I was in a conversation with a a friend of mine, and I was mad. I was really mad. And I let my anger control me. And it caused a bit of a problem in that relationship. It didn't really matter what I was mad about. It didn't matter if my anger was just or unjust because I didn't respond in the right way. And at the end of the day, I had a lot more cleanup to do than if I would have responded in the right way right away. We can't let anger control us, which is why Paul says in the text, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Did you notice he doesn't say, don't address your, he doesn't say address your anger immediately. Because for some of us, if I address my anger, that emotion of anger immediately, that's probably not the wisest move. Sometimes we need to give ourselves a minute or a couple of hours to cool off, to collect our thoughts before we enter in. Most people, when they feel that emotion of anger, they do one of two things. They fly off the rails and they lose control or they do nothing, and this seed of bitterness grows in their heart. That's what Paul talks about in this verse. He says, 
don't be bitter. Because when you're bitter, when you don't address anger in the right way and you allow it to grow into bitterness, you give the enemy a foothold. The Greek word tapas, it means foothold, stronghold. Literally, it means a place. Maybe a good way to think of it would be from the story we read a couple weeks ago. Remember the short story, My Heart, Christ's Home? Read that two weeks ago. This picture of when we become a Christian, Jesus becomes the title owner, the key holder of the house of our heart, and we become the tenant. But when we, when we give into bitterness, what we're doing is we're giving Satan permission to live in that little two-by-four closet upstairs, giving him access to keep accusations toward us. We're giving him a place, a position in our life. So Paul says, don't hang on to bitterness. Let go of bitterness. We can't fly off the rails. We can't hang on to bitterness. So what do we do? We meet in the middle. And we address our anger in a very controlled, respectful, and a loving way. Means that if someone hurts you, that you have a couple options. You can either go to them and talk about it, you can go to the Lord and you can forgive them and let it go, but we can't hold on to bitterness and we can't fly off the rails. We need to be a family that chooses to respond and address our anger in the right way. For number three, look at verse 28. It says this, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands that he may have something to share with anyone in need. That's our third principle. Put off selfish stealing Put on hard work because sharing is caring. I'm sure you've never heard that before. <laughs> That's true. There's a lot of things we don't want to share. I do appreciate that, Joseph. And this time of year, like everyone's sick, so let's not share our colds. So you have to understand that stealing was actually common in Paul's day because there wasn't a welfare system. There weren't unemployment checks. So if someone was out of work and they needed to provide for their family, they would go down to the market and grab a loaf of bread and put it on the table. But notice, Paul doesn't say, you know, don't steal unless you don't have a job. That's not what he says. There's no caveat. He doesn't provide a Robin Hood option where it's okay for the poor to steal from the rich. He says, don't steal, but work hard. And those might sound like harsh words, but not from Paul, because Paul worked harder than anyone else in the church at Ephesus. When he lived in Ephesus for a year and a half, he worked two full-time jobs. He was a tent maker by trade, morning, evening, every day, six days a week, he was making tents to pay his own bills. And then the middle of the day, starting in the synagogue, and then ultimately in the hall of Tyrannus, Paul would teach. So Paul was a full-time pastor and literally building tents full-time every day. Did he have the right to take missionary support from his church? Absolutely. And he tells them that in his letters. But in order not to be a burden to them, he said, I'm going to work so that you don't have to pay my salary. So when Paul says, you've got to work, he knew what it meant better than anyone else did. And that's Paul. He had an incredible work ethic. And he also understood that God created him. He created you to work. Did you know that? Sometimes we think of this, this work thing as inherently evil. It's not. When God created Adam and Eve and he placed them in the garden, he gave them a, a task to work the garden, to subdue it, to rule, to have dominion over it. God created Adam and Eve to work. And then when sin entered into the world, 
sin corrupted work. It infiltrated work. It made work hard and an uphill battle, but it did not make work evil. God did not create you to sit at home and play video games all day. God created you to work. That's part of what it means to be created in the image of God, to work, to build, to create. Work is not evil. Work is good. And God commands us to work. But Paul says, don't steal, but work. So that what? You can have fun and play hard on the weekends? No. So that you can be generous and share with anyone in need. Paul encourages us to work hard so that we have the opportunity to be a blessing to other people with our time, with our talents, with our treasures, with the things that God has given to us, because everything is his in the first place, to meet the need, to feel the need, to see the need in the life of our church family. But let's back up. Let's say that you walked in the door tonight and you're struggling with stealing, with theft. That could look like a lot of different things, couldn't it? Maybe it's retail theft. Maybe you're taken from the store. Maybe it's connected to the internet and you're pirating music, movies. Maybe you're stealing from your employer. Maybe it's not stuff. It could be, but maybe it's time. Showing up late, taking longer breaks than you should, being on your phone when you really know you're not supposed to. There's a lot of different ways that we could be tempted to to steal. Maybe you're borrowing things for an extended period of time without permission from your friends or family members or roommates. Or maybe you're actually taking things from their home. I don't know. But if that's you tonight, what do you do? Two things. And it's really hard. You confess. You go to the people that you've stolen from and you apologize. You ask for their forgiveness. And then second, you repent. You make it right. You pay back what you stole. You return it. If you want to see a radical example of someone coming to Christ and leaving behind a life of theft, look at Luke 19, 1 through 10. We're not going to read it tonight. You can just write that on the bottom of your handout if you want. Luke 19, 1 through 10. That would be a great text to read through this week. Don't steal, but be generous and quick and ready to share by working hard. Look at verse 29. Paul writes this. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion so that it may give grace to those who hear. Corrupting talk, it's the Greek word starpos. It literally means rotten. It's used to describe rotten fish, dead flowers, rotten wood. Paul's not talking about small talk or shooting the breeze. These are bad words. This is unwholesome conversation. Paul's last two commands, the last two things that we put off and put on are connected to what comes out of our mouth. So that's number four, put off worthless words, put on encouragement because we grieve the Holy Spirit with worthless words. Put off worthless words, put on encouragement because we grieve the Holy Spirit with worthless, rotten, bad, unwholesome words. How about the phrase, Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Anyone heard that before? Yeah, what a, what a joke, right? We know that that is the farthest thing from the truth because we've all been the recipient of painful barbs that have come from someone else. And Jesus knew that better than anyone because he knows that what comes out of our mouth is a direct indication of what's in here. 
Think of what Jesus said in Matthew 12, verse 36. It says this, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. By your words, you'll be justified, and by your words, you'll be condemned. If we want to know what truly matters to someone, Jesus is saying, listen to what they talk about. Because out of our heart come the words that we speak. And I'm thinking this verse should probably come to mind a little more in my life. You know, when I'm watching the Packers play and there's a terrible officiating call, is what I'm about to say worthless or is it valuable? Or when you're hanging out with your friends and the gossip train leaves the station and you have a great story that will get everyone rolling on the ground laughing, but it comes at the expense of someone else that's not even around the circle to defend themselves. Worthless words are valuable. Or when your coworkers gather in the workroom and the crude jokes start to fly, do we add another joke to the fire? Or do we walk away? See, instead of rotten words which destroy the body, Paul commands us to put on encouragement, which literally builds up the body. He's using the body metaphor. Just as working out lifting weights makes the body stronger, encouragement builds up, makes stronger the body of Christ. And I'm not talking about, Paul's not talking about false flattery. He's not even talking about basic compliments. Like, Ryan, that's a great haircut. Or Fritz, you look really sharp today, right? That, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about intentional, spiritual encouragement. Encouraging someone when they use their spiritual gifts. Reminding someone how much God's grown them and grown their faith in the last year. Thanking someone for praying for you. Spiritual encouragement. And when we do, we make our family stronger. But careless words, Paul says, grieve the Holy Spirit. Did he catch that? The Greek word means the same thing as it does in English, to sorrow, to make sad, to grieve. It might sound confusing. It makes sense when we think about it because the Holy Spirit, he's our seal of our future inheritance. So when we become a Christian and the Holy Spirit takes up residence in our heart and in our life, we have a permanent, lifelong, eternal relationship with the Holy Spirit. He dwells in and, and with us. So when we use worthless words, we make the spirit sad. And I bet you know that feeling. I remember when I lived out in California, um, right out of college, and I got a text or a phone call, I can't remember which, and found out that one of my spiritual heroes in college had just confessed to a years-long extramarital affair. He was a pastor. He was a professor we did ministry together. He spoke. I was leading worship. Incredible. One of the best speakers I've ever heard. And not only was he good on stage, he was a good one-on-one. Just an incredible guy. And when I found out, I was thankful he confessed. I was very thankful. And I wasn't really angry. I was sad. It's like that feeling in the pit of your stomach. Just, ugh. You know that feeling. I wonder if that's what Paul's talking about, that we make the Spirit feel 
a similar way when we hurt one another with our words. Because when I say something that hurts someone else, I'm wounding another temple of the Spirit. You see that connection? I think that's why the things that we say grieve the Spirit in a unique and a special way. Don't make the Spirit feel grieved by hurling hurtful words at someone in the family. Finally, look at the last two verses, 31 and 32, where Paul writes this. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. But be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Again, Paul's focusing on the words, the things that come out of our mouth. But instead, the, the type of speech that he's talking about is, is hateful speech. It's hurtful speech. He uses the word malice. It's malicious speech. When Paul uses the word malice at the end of, of verse 31, that's like a catch-all word. It's an etc. Think of any type of language that's designed to inflict pain and hurt in the life of a brother or sister. That is what Paul is talking about here. So he says, put off wounding words, put on kindness and forgiveness because you've been forgiven. That's our final principle tonight. Put off wounding words, put on kindness and forgiveness because you've been forgiven. We know the pain of wounding words. Maybe you struggle with gossip, sharing negative things about someone else behind their back when you have nothing to do with the problem or the solution. Gossip, it refuses to address a problem head on while making the problem even bigger behind someone's back. Gossip, it kills life groups. It destroys friend groups. Gossip is one of the biggest threats to a ministry like young adults because one moment of gossip can destroy the trust in a relationship that took years to develop. So before we share that story, before we make that comment behind someone's back, it's always wise to ask, is what I'm entering into, is what I'm about to share crossing the line into gossip? If the answer could be yes, it is always wise to bite our tongue. But did you notice the first command? Paul says, put off bitterness. It's connected to anger, isn't it? It's the second time he's used the word in the text. See, a common response to anger is uncontrolled anger. But a second common response is bitterness, is internalizing the pain without addressing it and allowing the root of bitterness to grow like a weed in our hearts, one that causes a deep divide in our relationships. See, the opposite of forgiveness is bitterness. Bitterness, it's easy. It's passive. While forgiveness, on the other hand, is hard and it's active. And it'll, but that bitterness will... <laughs> wreak havoc in our relationships. Maybe consider this example. At the time of the account, this is a true account, Deborah was a 29-year-old woman living in Florida. It's Christmas Day. And the police are called because Deborah shoots another woman with a stun gun. Now, we might think, was she threatening her? No. Did the other woman have a gun? No. Did she have a knife? No. Did she hurl insults at her? No, what did this other woman named Sherry, what did Sherry do to Deborah? She tried to give her a hug. So Deborah, she got a really nice gift, Christmas gift from the authorities. It was an all expense paid trip to the county jail. And that's where she spent Christmas. So as the authorities began to 
figure out what in the world happened here, they took some personal history. They realized that Deborah and Sherry, they were friends. At least they had been. There was a long-standing conflict between the two of them, and they happened to be in the same place on Christmas Day. Sherry was either picking up or dropping off someone else, I can't remember, and happened to see Deborah. And from Sherry's perspective, they'd reconciled. Everything was good to go. So she tries to give Deborah a Christmas hug, and what does Deborah do? Pulls out her stun gun, because all of us have those in our back pocket, right? (laughs) So I guess the moral of the story is, this Christmas, don't shoot your friend with a stun gun. Or maybe the real moral of the story is Deborah certainly hadn't resolved her bitterness and it ate her alive for years. Now, when we're dealing with bitterness, <laughs> we might not have the temptation to pull out a stun gun. <laughs> but it wreaks havoc in our lives, doesn't it? See, when you feel that root of bitterness toward a brother or sister, you don't want to be around him. You don't want to see him. You don't want to talk to them. You certainly don't want to serve next to them. And your thoughts can be consumed with this frustration, this anger, this bitterness, so much so that it can even stunt your own growth. Bitterness is a problem in our hearts. It's certainly a problem in our family. So what do we do? Well, the only alternative is forgiveness. Forgiveness, it's for you. It's not for the person necessarily that you're forgiving. Forgiveness starts with our heart. It doesn't need to be asked for. Forgiveness is a choice. Some people believe that forgiveness means forgetting. Forgive and forget. You heard that phrase before? It's impossible. When someone sins against you emotionally, likely you'll never forget that pain for the rest of your life. If forgiveness equals forgetting, then forgiveness is impossible. Instead, forgiveness literally means to absorb the debt. To forgive means I'm willing to pay the emotional price of the sin caused by this person in my life. Forgiveness means that we're willing to let go of the pain. Forgiveness means that we're willing to release the person that's sinned against us, that hurt us, that we're not going to hold the sin over their head. We're not going to use it as a bargaining chip. We're not going to tell other people about it that we're letting go. And when we say, I'm willing to pay the price of their sin, then in the next breath we say, Jesus, you've already paid for the sin of the cross, and I'm giving this sin, this pain to you. Take away my bitterness. Forgiveness, yes, it can be a process. Yes, it's really hard. But it is the only path through bitterness. And just like gossip, bitterness will destroy our family. So if if you're dealing with feelings of bitterness towards someone in your life, someone part of the family, someone part of your nuclear family, coworker, and you don't know what to do, I would love to talk to you. Bianca would love to talk to you. And we would love to help you work through that forgiveness together. Well, those are our five commands. And I want you to imagine what would happen in our young adult family if we chose every day to clothe ourselves in these qualities Imagine the growth, the strengthening of our family that would occur. Imagine what would happen if we chose to be honest all of the time, even when it was hard or inconvenient. Imagine what would happen if we addressed our anger immediately instead of letting our anger control us or instead of being bitter. Imagine what would happen if we worked hard and we intentionally looked for ways to be generous with one another. Imagine 
what would happen if we got rid of all the worthless words and the wounding words that come out of our mouth and instead we practiced intentional spiritual encouragement and forgiveness. That's the type of forever family that I want to be part of. So as we wrap up tonight, with the risk of sounding a little bit cultish, I want you to look at the backside of your handouts. (laughs) And you'll notice there's five statements, five visionary statements about our family that apply to our life groups. They apply to our young adult family. They apply to Highland Community Church. And I want us to read these out loud together. (laughs) Joseph, I don't know why that's funny. (laughs) Read these with me. We are a family that tells the truth. We are a family that addresses our anger. We are a family that shares. We are a family that encourages. We are a family that forgives. Well, congratulations, you've just been initiated into the young adult family cult. Here's the deal. We don't all live in a little house in the big woods together, otherwise we'd really be a cult. But we are a family, and this is a family that's worth fighting for. Let me pray. Father, we look at a text like this, and it can kind of be overwhelming. At least it can for me, because there are so many opportunities to grow. And when we look at a highly practical text, instead of walking away feeling beat up or feeling like, um, like at points we're a failure, Father, may you just give us one or two things tonight. Um, something that we can hang our hat on, something that we can grow in, uh, a way that we can better exemplify the family that you want us to be. Being a family, it's not easy but we know we don't get to choose our family. So Father, help us uh, to be a family that loves unconditionally, that shares, that serves, that looks for ways to be generous, and that uses our words to encourage one another. Uh, Father, we're thankful for our time together tonight and ask that you guide our small groups. In Jesus' name, amen.